This originally began as a standalone piece that I planned to release on this very feed as a one-off this summer. Then it morphed into a whole new project and endeavor of its own. Then my feelings changed about that project, sort of stunting its progress. So it's back to a February project piece for now. It drips with the manic energy I felt at the time that has since been drained from my body by time and whatever the hell else. This leaves me feeling highly unqualified and insecure about my words here, so kind of hope that maybe releasing this piece can will that energy back into me. But enjoy this proto-introduction to a perhaps upcoming, definitely unnamed podcast. How do you learn about the world? Where do you look to find understanding of other people, of yourself, who you are, and the position you take amongst everybody else? I know my answer. It's a very common one. Stories, media, pop culture, we're inundated by it, and that has its pros and cons. For decades now, we've been living and raising children in a world where pop culture is the hottest commodity. We strive for chances to get our words in edgewise in this landscape of endless information and people who have things to say about that information. The stories we're told, fiction and nonfiction, build our perspectives bit by bit, provide us examples of humanity that mold our own psyches and impact our relationships with the real people in our real lives. When we're lost, when we don't know ourselves, we can sometimes find an image of a human being in a story that looks familiar, that might look like a fraction of you, easier to approach from that distance. We can say, if a fraction of me is present in that person, who I want to win, who I want to be happy, that person who looks like a whole person to me, well maybe I am a whole person too. Maybe all those fractions that I've spotted through the years amount to something after all. This is why so many people work so hard to break down the barriers that stop us from telling stories about those who have been historically invisible. It's why storytelling has changed so much in the last 15, in the last five years, and is changing as we speak. This is why when I'm told a story that breathes life into queer characters in a way I feel like I've never seen before, it electrifies me. I think, what if I had heard this when I was 18, or when I was 12, or when I was six? What will it be like to grow up in a world where this story exists, telling young people that the fraction of themselves they see in it is not only valid, but something worth telling stories about? I saw something on Twitter a while ago that made me wish you could just submit a tweet as a proposal for a PhD. It was actually a retweet of a Vulture article titled, Six Queer Creators Share Their Dream TV and Film Projects. Vulture's tweet text reads, Many queer creators, even those with decades of success behind them, still say they have a hard time convincing the gatekeepers at TV networks and film studios to take risks on their pitches. Sophie Takagi Kaner retweeted this, adding, Do it as a podcast. This hit upon something that I've been solidly ruminating on for almost a year now, a concept that has been zipping around my brain ever since it was shocked to life up there by Sophie Takagi Kaner's very own show, The Penumbra Podcast. Their show is a host of serialized audio fiction that employs portrayals of queer sexualities, relationships, and gender identities with such fearless confidence and nonchalance that, in my ravenous consumption of the show, had me manically asking, why would I ever tell stories about straight cis people again when I could be telling stories like this? How is it that most stories told today still only have one or two queer characters seemingly just to tick a box? How do I still feel so scared and embarrassed to write queer characters when they make it feel so easy? That spark lit a fuse that burst into the realization that I want my life's work to be queer storytelling. I want to study it, I want to contribute to it, I want to make it my responsibility to promote its growth. 
And to be highly specific, I want to crack into what feels so special to me about queerness in podcasting. Why does it seem to be a bit easier to stand firmly by queer stories in the podcast space? Why have I heard some of the most progressive representation of queer identities in fiction podcasts with vibrant online followings? How do we get this kind of storytelling out there in front of more eyes, flowing into more ears, accessible to people who need it? Podcasts sit adjacent to the social media world, but are somehow less restricted by gatekeepers. Even YouTube has become a platform controlled by the drive for profit and corporations attempting to scrub their creators' content clean of anything that can be seen as mildly controversial through a very selective lens. Queer YouTubers have consistently had their content demonetized while straight white men prey on the fragile sensibilities of very young viewers to endlessly hawk their expensive merch without consequence. There is no room of gatekeepers you have to pitch to and get past before you make a podcast. You can just make one. Of course, there are networks that provide support for podcasts, but networks are not needed to make a podcast successful, and certainly not to start one. I will gladly counsel anyone on how to start a podcast with a reasonably priced feed host, a $30 microphone, and free audio editing software. Anyone who tries to tell you you need equipment of a certain caliber is a gatekeeper, and their opinion does not matter. All you need is an idea and time and the desire to learn how to make the best product you can with what you have. Podcasts that gain traction can be pretty easily monetized regardless of content or subject, and don't rely on a single platform to reach their audience. Patreon is a massively impactful tool for podcasters and queer creators in general, allowing fans of their work to support them directly without a middleman. It has allowed creators to grow their stories into lucrative endeavors that support their own production and development. It also allows for an explosive diversification of content that doesn't have to be passed by anyone who controls their money and means to keep creating. For quite a few years now, as audio fiction has risen new and reborn from the ashes of the radio dramas of a bygone era, it seems that creators compelled to tell responsible queer stories can easily do so in podcasts. An early example is Welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Night Vale began in 2012, created by Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner. In general, it was kind of to fiction podcasts what Serial was to podcasts in general. It put fiction podcasts on the map, and did so while jumping headfirst within the first episodes to identifying the protagonist as gay without fanfare. I haven't listened to Night Vale in a long time, but from what I remember, the existence of the characters Cecil and Carlos, among others, and the way their narrative was treated like any other sweet, silly romance, sent a message loud and clear to other storytellers. You're allowed to do this here. Please, come join us. I want to make mention of two other podcasts that have been incredibly influential to me in the realm of audio fiction, if not just to give them the props they deserve for doing what they do. The previously mentioned Penumbra podcast, made by Sophie Takaki Kaner and Kevin Vibert, most notably in their arc that follows bisexual non-binary detective Juno Steele, builds a world on a future vision of a civilized Mars and how economic and political power struggles manifest in a society devoid of gender norms. The second is The Magnus Archives, by Jonathan Sims and Alex J. Newell, a horror serial based around statements by those who have encountered the supernatural within a meta-narrative populated by not only queer characters, but a canonical asexual protagonist. Both of these shows develop worlds where characters' queerness is never a story beat or a conflict, merely a piece of who they are established in the same way one might, through a strictly audio medium, develop their appearance or personality. These storytellers have created two incredible worlds and communicated to their listeners that they can do the same. It works, and they have meant so much to me and the influence they have on everything I will make in the future.
Visibility is key for both consumers and other creators. Seeing queer characters portrayed in innovative ways not only teaches the listener, the viewer, or reader that this is what the world looks like, but shows storytellers that it can be done, that people are ready for these kinds of stories, even though those in positions of power might like us to think otherwise. When we consume a story that appeals to us, that we relate to, we catalog that as an example of humanity in our brains. It's the very heart of why representation is so important, why we need to make great effort to normalize, to proliferate the portrayals of queer people, people of color, queer people of color, identities that have been hushed and diluted, made palatable for the intolerant masses forever. We are still in a wild west when it comes to acceptance and understanding how we respect each other's identities and how to expect and ask for respect from others. But I can't help feeling like we're getting there at a speed that feels breakneck and excruciatingly slow at the same time. As a podcast addict, it excites me that some of the most revolutionary portrayals of sexuality and gender I've seen have been in the very art form I love most. Sophie Takagi Kaner's wise words, do it as a podcast, are words I kind of decided to live by a long time ago, completely unrelated to queerness. If I ever have an idea for a project, it usually ends up taking the form of a podcast because that's what I love and that's what I know how to make. So in my attempt to understand how storytelling has impacted queer identities, I do, in fact, want to make another podcast. I want to lay the foundation for my understanding of how storytelling has affected queer people I know. Let's start at the very bottom before we get to the way queer is changing in media at large. And let's start at home. I want to talk to my friends and acquaintances about the media that taught them about queerness, the first time they saw a reflection or even a glimmer of themselves in a story they were told. I also want to know what kinds of messages they were being sent by family and peers, the attitudes about queerness that they were raised with. I want to know what stories contributed to their understanding of themselves at formative ages, how they remember being told that what we feel is real and possible and that we're not alone and what they still mean to us, if anything. This has been day two of the February Project, a podcast where I make an audio piece of 10 minutes or less every day in the month of February 2020. The music in this episode is by Pottington Bear. <laughs>